good afternoon and welcome to this Institute for Government event on finding a long-term solution for adult social care. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a programme director at the Institute. The question of how to reform and fund adult social care has been asked of and left unanswered by successive governments. Over the past decade, as financial pressures on local authorities have increased, this question has become more pressing. Requests for support have increased, yet fewer adults now receive publicly funded care, leaving some bankrupted by care costs and many to rely on care provided informally by family and friends. The Conservative manifesto promised that no one would need to sell their home to pay for care and that the government would begin cross-party talks on social care funding within the new government's first 100 days. Matt Hancock did write to all MPs in early March asking for suggestions, but attempts to reform the system were overtaken by events. The coronavirus outbreak has placed substantial additional pressure on the social care system and highlighted that although social care is critical to the working of the health and care system, it does not receive the funding, political attention or public support enjoyed by the NHS. So what are the key elements of a sustainable long-term settlement for adult social care? How much more money does social care need to provide a decent service? How realistic is a cross-party consensus? And what impact has coronavirus had on the prospects for reform? To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by three fantastic speakers. First up will be Martin Routledge, Head of Development at Community Circles, and convener of the Social Care Future Movement. Second will be Graham Atkins, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Government and our lead on health and social care issues. And third will be Vicky Cook, the founding partner of Britain Thinks, and also the co-founder of Opinion Leader Research, uh, the smart company, uh, Brand Democracy and Caucus. Each of our speakers will make opening remarks. I will then ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for any of our panellists, please submit them using the Q&A function that you can see on your screen. You can submit them while we're speaking, and I'll try to ask as many of them as possible. I'd also like to encourage you to tweet using hashtag CPC20. And for those of you viewing the conference in our tent, if you'd like to know more about our work in this area, then please click on the Get in Touch button to submit your details. Right, without further ado, I'll hand over to our first speaker, Martin Routledge. Thanks, Nick, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm a social worker by profession. I've worked for 20 years with local government and 15 with central government and national agencies, including nearly 10 years with the social care part of the Department of Health. Currently, I am one of the conveners of a national network called Social Care Future. My colleague convener, Anna Severite, who herself uses social care, had hoped to be with me, but timing didn't allow, unfortunately, today. For the last two years, we've been bringing together a wide range of people who use and work in social care along with managers, support providers, academics, politicians, and others. And we've been asking what's working and what's not working and what's the future we want to see. We have a diverse panel of 12 people who use social care who are leading the next stage of this work. And we've also been researching what the public thinks about these things and how they might be encouraged to support change and investment in social care. One of the results of all these sessions that we've been doing over the past two years is, is a simple vision that we think should steer social care reform. And it reads, we all want to live in the place we call home with the people and things that we love in communities where we look out for one another, doing the things that matter to us. Of course, these things are just as important if we or people we care about need some extra support due to a health condition or a disability or, or just getting older. 
And in fact, there are lots of brilliant people and groups based in their communities, which are, are already working together with people who need support to carry on doing the things that matter to them in their lives. They use their local knowledge and relationships to develop ways that people can get support that works for them as individual people, rather than as one size fits all type services. Crucially, these are about having a life, not just being kept alive. <clears throat> Good councils are supporting and funding these approaches as part of a wider relationship with their local communities to get together in making places good for everyone to live in. And they also know that investing in better care and support means that they, they can create good jobs for local people and support the local economy. But unfortunately, these better ways of offering support are too often not getting the support that they need from local councils and they in turn from successive national governments. And as a result, sadly, many people and families struggle to get any support at all. And too often the limited support that is available focuses only on keeping us alive and physically safe. But we all need support to get what makes life worth living, connections to friends and family and interests and fun, and feeling useful to other people. These are the things that research and experience tells us are crucial to us as humans. But it doesn't have to be this way. From our experience of what we call glimpses of the future around the country, we know that we can do much better, including making much better use of the resources that we already have at our disposal. And there is an opportunity to transform social care that it's sustainable and it contributes to national economic recovery and it plays a key role in ensuring that all people with care and support needs are fully included in their communities. That way we can all look forward to the right support helping us to live the lives that we want to lead, no matter our age or the stage of life that we're at. But what does that look like in practice? For us, it's, it's a linked up set of local forms of support and for many people, it's helping people right at the start when we need some support by connecting us with self-help or community-based opportunities and solutions. And for many, avoiding the need for formal services. We could sometimes call this prevention. It's also about promoting independence at key points in people's lives when we might fall into unwanted dependency on public services, such as when we've had a stay in hospital or when we find ourselves very disconnected from others and lonely. Where people do need significant support, offering this in ways which enable people to stay connected and contributing to their communities is critical, including economically. And this means blending and using formal support resources with a much wider range of local opportunities. It's really important too that support is what we call self-directed, where people's expertise in themselves and their situations, alongside their exercise of choice and control over support, means that they can get efficient personalised design, which enables the best good value results. What people also want to see is a shift in the balance of longer term support, essentially away from some of the institutional forms of support, or certainly achieving a better balance. We want to see a diversity of options and choices, with a bias towards what we call human-sized and human-shaped community-embedded approaches. And these make full use of enabling technology and other local resources and ingenuity. So for us, social care can be much better and it can be much more sustainable. To do this, we need to make some investments that unlock capacity in our communities. From the glimpses of the future that we see in places around the country, we think we've got a good idea about how to do this, but we need investment and a strong focus on this approach over several years to achieve it. We need to be clear that it would be quite possible now to spend billions of pounds on the way that we do things now 
and for this really to be spend but not investment not to achieve the kind of change that's needed so we need to spend the money wisely we've got strong ideas and examples about where to focus that investment to get the win-win that we think is much needed thank you brilliant thank you very much martin i'm now going to hand over to our second speaker graham atkins great thanks nick uh, so I think this question of whether the government can find a long-term solution for social care is really important. But first, I just want to reflect about what coronavirus has told us about social care. So we know that care workers, from those who work in care homes, to those who provide people with care in their own homes, have been on the front line. You know, tragically, kind of care homes have been one of the largest sites of deaths uh, during coronavirus. So about 15,000 people have died in care homes uh, during the pandemic. That's about just under a third of all, of all kind of coronavirus deaths. Uh, so social care is clearly important. I think this crisis has also really illustrated the problems it faces. So long before the pandemic, social care had basically been the Cinderella of public services, performing vital work but often overlooked in policymaking. So unlike the NHS, as Nick mentioned earlier, which was promised whatever was necessary at the March budget, the funding announcements for social care have often been piecemeal uh, and in response to requests from from local government or from care providers themselves. Uh, the Social Care Action Plan came on the 16th of April, quite a long time after the focus had been on freeing up hospital bed space in case of an influx of coronavirus patients. Now, this isn't unique to the pandemic. Uh, existing Institute for Government Research has shown that over the last decade, uh, public spending on adult social care is actually now 2% lower in real terms than it was in 2010. Uh, in contrast, NHS spending is about 19% higher, and that's really despite the fact that both of those services are dealing with rising demand. I think the second thing the crisis illustrates is really that the public fu publicly funded social care system was really on the brink and facing serious cost pressures going into this crisis. So we know that uh, way back in 2018, the Competition and Markets Authority found that local authorities were paying about 10% less than the cost of care placements of course meaning that in order to make that money up uh, care providers charge those who fund their own care slightly more um, we know that during the crisis local government estimates that uh, they've run at cost of about just over two billion just between march and july to respond to the pandemic and that's for things like buying personal protective equipment and putting infection control measures in place in care homes and when asked in june only 4% of social care directors were confident that their budget would be enough just to meet needs in this year. So with that context in mind, uh, that social care really remains the Cinderella of public services and that the publicly funded part of it was facing serious cost pressures at the start, how can the government build a long-term solution for social care? Well, at the Institute for Government, we've looked at this question before and we think there's really three questions they need to answer. The first is, what kind of social care system do we want as a country? The second, how much would that cost? And who should pay for it? And the third, uh, how can that money be provided consistently? So as Martin was saying before, uh, there's really a need to think about what kind of social care system, what kind of support for people do we want to have? So unlike the NHS, social care is not free at the point of use. It's both means-tested and needs-tested. And one kind of well-known problem that creates is that if you have over a certain level of wealth, you can effectively face unlimited costs having to sell your home uh, if you have a social care need. Um, 
but you still have a certain level of means. Uh, but that's not the only problem. Um, currently, the way it's funded, we ought to consider whether that's really providing, the existing funding is providing enough to provide a good standard of care. Is it providing enough uh, for those who work in the care sector to really uh, kind of be remunerated properly? And last year, Institute for Government Research found the government would have to spend at least £700 million more by 2024, by the end of the parliament, just to maintain standards in the existing system. Uh, so it's a big question, not only kind of how much do we need to keep things still, but what kind of system do we want? Now, the second, much more difficult question uh, is who is going to pay for that? And there have been no, no end of attempts to reform social care over the last 20 years. To take probably the two most recent prominent ones, at the end of the last Labour government, uh, the proposals were attacked as a debt. Much more recently, Theresa May's proposals were kind of doomed uh, uh, after being um, deemed a dementia tax. So how you pay for kind of any social care system is politically controversial. Now, this government promised it would build cross-party consensus. At the same time, it's commissioned Kamenet Cavendish to kind of do some work to think about how to reform social care. So, and it, of course, has an ATC majority. So the government could just try to pass legislation. But as we all know, that majority has been looking increasingly shaky recently. Uh, it's unclear whether this government is going to want to take the political risk of moving alone, particularly if it can't rely on opposition votes. So we at the Institute think a better approach would be the government to try and build that cross-party consensus uh, that it claims that it wants to. We think the best way for it to do that is to set up an independent commission uh, with buy-in kind of from the other parties, uh, and in particular from the Treasury and the Prime Minister, which is often where previous uh, reform proposals have floundered. So there is the outline um, of a consensus, a cap on care costs is supported by all three main parties in England. Um, and really in order to build something that is really maintained across successive parliaments and not just one-off funding injections, this government is gonna have to work with the other parties as well. Uh, and the third question, kind of how that funding can be provided consistently, it's less sexy, it's less interesting, is equally important. Uh, social care funding tends to go through periods of feast and famine, mostly famine over the last decade. But even the kind of last minute funding injections that are really crucial tend to be time limited or for a couple of years or come with quite stringent conditions. So we think that kind of sorting the funding system to make it more consistent over time would allow both local authorities and care providers to kind of plan, invest in the future and really uh, put in place some of the better systems of support that Martin was outlining earlier. So there's definitely a case for a longer term funding settlement, uh, even once the bigger question of who pays has been addressed. So in short, the pandemic has shown the importance of and some of the biggest problems in social care. It is possible, it's eminently possible for this government to find a solution to funding social care, but it needs to do it through working in a cross-party way and setting up a parliamentary inquiry. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Graham. And now going to go to our final speaker, Vicky Cook. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, and hello, everybody. I'm sorry we're not seeing you in person, but I think we're all getting pretty used to this now. Um, so I'm going to spend a few minutes just sharing with you some highlights of where the public's at on all of this debate. Um, and one of the things that, that Britain thinks we bore for the universe about is start from where people are, not where you wish they were. And the context is everything. So the first thing I'm going to say is the public have, frankly, very little understanding of social care, what it is, what it means. 
when they think about it, they, people tend to most commonly associate it with care homes for older people, but they don't view that as being part of any coherent system. Uh, people inevitably who've had some kind of direct interactions tend to have a, a better understanding. But even then, they're often very limited in, in what they see it as being. And social care services, when you start talking about the services that are provided, are very often conflated with services provided by the NHS. Um, and this is even more the case with younger people, perhaps not surprising. So you start from a place where the public know very little about it and, and don't, frankly, start with very clear views about what they're looking for in this space. Having said that, uh, as we've already heard, the, the pandemic has shone the spotlight on the care system overall, and particularly on care homes. And the system has been found to be wanting in the extreme. And people are really, really angry, actually, about what they've learned about it and, and really angry at the perceived failings towards the most vulnerable in society. And I think that, that, that it falls sort of really into two areas. One is the kind of apparent complete lack of respect or regard for the staff. You know, we failed to keep them safe. Uh, we failed to protect them. Uh, so we made people who were working with very vulnerable, vulnerable people vulnerable themselves. But I think also it speaks of what's really worryingly thought to be a kind of disregard for the older generation who... People say, well, it was almost like they were the acceptable loss of the pandemic and that actually it couldn't have been by accident that we let what happened happen. Um, so this has really reinforced existing concerns about care homes particularly uh, and care for the elderly more generally where people think that they're just not really considered to be very valuable members of society. And so whilst there are low levels of understanding about the system, there are some quite widespread concerns, uh, often driven by media stories rather than personal experience. Um, but you know, everyone is aware of horrific stories of abuse in care homes and, and really, really concerned about some of those things that they hear about. And people are also very aware that care jobs are, are really poorly paid, very demanding, and actually not considered to be professional roles. Um, you know, and people say, well, why are carers not shown the same respect as nurses? Why isn't the career of a carer equivalent to that being of a nurse, because what they do is equally as important. Why don't we professionalise the role and, and, and make it more respected? But moving on to the question of funding, um, there are really low levels of awareness or understanding about, about funding. Some people know that you might have to sell your home to fund care, but generally people sort of think it's a bit like the NHS and at the end of the day it'll be provided free at the point of delivery, like healthcare. Um, less than a third of the population have thought about how to pay for their care when they get older, and only 15% are making active plans for their older life. Uh, and perhaps a particular concern is that no more likely amongst older people, in spite of them more likely to know that it's not free. So people are not planning for it. I think it's partly because it's something nobody really wants to think about. Um, but, you know, once you make people aware of the funding model, it, it tends to provoke real anger and a very strong emotional response. Uh, it's thought to be really unfair and to be punitive to the people who've done the right things in life. And it also makes later life a bit of a lottery, because if you get cancer, then you get your care free. If you get dementia, then your home and your life savings may well be taken from you. And that means that feels very, very unfair to people. Uh, means testing is thought to be deeply unfair and, and really shocking for people. Uh, the thresholds are thought to be ridiculously low, um, you know, and, and in effect mean that pretty well everybody will have to pay. And they sort of encourage a mindset that being feckless in life pays off. Um, also, the notion of having to sell your home to pay for care sparks an incredibly strong response in people. This is a really, really, really emotive issue because you know your home is the symbol of your hard work and your personal achievement. 
it may also be something that you know you inherited from your parents and that helped you to pay for it and it's absolutely something that people fundamentally believe they should be able to pass on to the next generation and that's even more important now that it's so hard for young people to get on the property ladder um and then when you think, ask people, well, why has nothing been done about this? There's a kind of widespread belief that no government has tackled this because it's just too difficult. And that is felt to be a real cop-out um, and that it's a, it's a question that needs to be addressed urgently. And, and so sort of once people start thinking about it, they start saying, well, this is as important to sort out as, as the future of the NHS. It's an incredibly important thing to think about and do. So just really to kind of wrap up with what the public sort of says are their priorities for the future of social care and what needs to happen. Um, and they're really clear that the starting point has to be a big, bold, long-term vision. Uh, and, but that, that should probably follow some key principles. But first of all, start by actually having a vision and having a vision that everyone can buy into. So the public would love cross-party consensus and people working together on this. But some of those principles are that everyone who needs it should be able to access it. Um, that we really need to think about better, consistent funding, but against a long-term plan. So totally agree uh, with, with the point Graham was just making. This isn't about short-term fixes. This is about a long-term sustainable plan. We also need to urgently tackle the quality issues and really make sure that we are caring for the most vulnerable in our society and giving them the care that they deserve and need. We should professionalise the care sector uh, to build respect for people who work in the care sector, have better pay and better opportunities for care workers, make it a more appealing career for people. If individuals have to contribute, and, and there is some support for that up to an extent, uh, there should definitely be a cap and thresholds be, need to be raised. And really, the thought is that no one should have to sell their home to pay for it. And in terms of other thoughts from the public about how to fund it, there's some support for a social insurance model with contributions being made through your working life and with contributions ring fenced. Um, so I would say that one of the most important ways of moving forward and, and hopefully perhaps going beyond just cross-party consensus is actually to involve the public. I mean, why aren't we doing something like a citizens' assembly on the future of social care? People have tried it, but unless we actually get buy-in from, uh, from government and, and opposition parties, uh, and a will to actually work with the public, it probably won't succeed. But the public can really contribute to this debate, and I really hope they get the chance to. Thank you very much. Vicky, thank you very much. Right, we're going to move on to some um, questions, and reminder to those um, watching to please um, submit your questions uh, to the audience using the Q&A function uh, that you have on your screen. Uh, I'm just going to start with a few questions for myself to panellists picking up on things they've just said. Uh, Vicky, you mentioned um, that there is some support for social insurance. Are there any other kind of taxes that people would consider? For example, is there any research on, for example, whether raising income tax or national insurance or things like that? How, how willing would the public be to swallow rises in those taxes? Um, well, I think people are more willing than perhaps uh, you might imagine. I think the, the key issue would be, I think it needs to be reinvented. Um, I think a hypothecated tax would probably actually get public support. To be honest, whether it's income tax or national insurance, at the end of the day, doesn't make very much difference to the public. It's money coming out of their, their kind of pay packet. But I think that we are seeing more, sort of, I mean, of course, everyone starts from the point of view of we'd love it to come from the rich companies and rich people. Actually, once people have a sense of the scale of the challenge, I think there is quite a lot of support that we should all be contributing a bit more through our working lives on money that we earn 
to actually help pay for this. So I think the public are pretty hazy about exactly how, but I think they would support it as well as it's hypothecated. And I just wanted to pick up on, on one other thing you said, which is um, thinking about when the public find out about the current system uh, and the means testing they think is kind of very unfair and, uh, and punitive. Obviously, as, as Graham said, they're kind of part of the issue with the current system that those with really any meaningful assets at all are at risk of losing some of them in order to pay for their own care. And obviously, the argument that has previously been uh, used against putting a cap is that it's effectively regressive, that those with the most assets have the most to gain. But do you not do you think that argument actually wouldn't hold much weight and that the unfairness argument is much stronger? I think the unfairness argument is much, much stronger. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, there could be arguments perhaps for sort of regional caps or whatever, because, you know, obviously the value of a property in London is very different from the value of a property in, in other parts of the country. But I think that there's, um, and I think that's where, you know, if, if you perhaps did it through tax and everything, then people who have more would contribute more. And I think that people would consider to be very fair. But I think it's a combination of, a sense of punishing people who probably worked incredibly hard to build their assets to, to open their own home, that they could then lose it all. Whereas somebody who's, and, and inevitably, and, and it's deeply unfair, but people do tend to, you know, tend to fall into language of benefits grants and everything, and, and that's not, of course, the truth. But when you tell people what the thresholds are, they say, well, to be honest, that's anybody who's ever, you know, made any attempt to save any tiny bit of money through their life. Is going to pay for this so it reinforces the fact that people who get it for free probably haven't actually done very much to contribute to their own future and it's not that people are hostile to them i think it's just a deep-seated sense of unfairness that if you do the right thing through life you get punished for it graham i, I know the institute we often say that the kind of the the challenges with social care reform are political rather than technical that there are sort of a range of suggestions for how to reform the system that aren't technically difficult it's just coalescing support around any one of them one of the things that uh, vicky mentioned there that's particularly popular with the public are kind of ring-fenced hypothecated taxes are there any technical problems with a hypothecated tax yeah, I mean, th there are a couple. It's worth noting that we don't really do hypothecation in this country at all. So whether you're paying kind of national insurance or any of the other taxes, it goes into a big pot, which the government then, you know, decides how it wants to spend. Um, I think the real big problem would be you hypothecate a certain amount for social care. You've got to be sure of two things that it's basically, well, you know, the Treasury will ask two questions. Is it enough uh, and or is it too much? And you'd have to find some tax that would rise and fall in line with demand for social care, which on a technical level is quite challenging. I can't think of anything in particular that would meet that. That's not to say you can't package a reform as a hypothecated tax. But I think if you were genuinely to say this money has to be spent specifically on social care, you either risk it not being enough or you risk it being too much uh, in the Treasury's view and if you like over overspending and, and wasteful spending. So. Uh, definitely politically popular, technically quite difficult question of how you package it. Vicky, I think you wanted to come uh, back in there. Yeah, if I, can, I totally agree with that. And I think when people, when the public talk about hypothecation tax, they're not thinking about all of those complexities. I think they're just wanting some kind of guarantee that sensible amounts of money are committed to that and can and continue to be committed to that and are at the, you know, the, the, the folly of the next budget. I think the other thing I would say is people believe national insurance is a hypothecated tax as they think it's there to pay for their pensions and health. And again, when they discover it's not, that it's just general taxation, they actually get really angry and say, well, this is really dishonest. Let's just make it tax. 
you know, either we have something that is for our sort of social well-being, or we're just paying tax and can we stop, you know, get rid of this sort of silly lie? Martin. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Whenever we have a conversation about social care reform, we don't really talk about social care reform. We talk about reform of social care finance. Uh, and I'm really sorry that my colleague Anna Severite can't be uh, with us this afternoon. Um, uh, she is someone that uses social care. And I, I do really think that the reason that we don't talk about what social care does and, uh, and how, how that gets reformed is that people with social care who use social care aren't involved in the debates. Um, so over the last two years when we've been getting together with lots of people using social care and, and other people, people who, who uh, work in social care and commission it, etc. Conversations uh, have not been the same as those that are held by think tanks and commissions and select committees. Um, it is critical, obviously, that we get the money sorted out. Um, uh, and uh, there are a bunch of ways of doing that. And that's, it is really critical, obviously. But it would be quite possible to sort the money out and not improve things significantly. Uh, and in fact, I think there's a really high danger of that happening. So I, I started out as a social worker 35 years ago. Uh, I've worked in local authorities at all levels. Uh, and I've worked in central government, um, uh, you know, being part of some of these conversations with Treasury, uh, etc. And to be honest, the main forms of social care haven't changed over three or four decades. If you look at what adult social care spend goes on in local authorities, it nearly all goes on long-term care. And that money is spent on usually on fairly traditional forms of residential care and fairly traditional forms of domiciliary care. Uh, and the forms of domiciliary care, um, partly you know, significantly because of the money, but not only because of the money, offer time and task, life and limb support to people to keep people alive and safe in their homes. And people want and need so much more than that. Uh, and the money that goes on residential care uh, is um, if you look at uh, the, the trends, uh, residential care um, places are getting bigger, um, the quality is declining. So it's really important that we have an equal uh, debate, you know, that, that these debates are, are balanced across where's the money coming from and, and who's, you know, who's going to pay for it uh, and what social care does. And I, I think in these conversations uh, at this critical time, when we're learning so much about people's experience uh, during COVID, um, we, we need to have a conversation that's a bit more nuanced about what we do short, medium and long term. There are things that can be done short and medium term that would really improve people's experience of social care. Uh, and for me, a big part of that is investment to release the capacity that exists in our communities uh, uh, and um, it feels like that's hardly being talked about to me. Vicky, I think you wanted to come back in. Um, yeah, just to, to really uh, totally agree with that. I think what's interesting is when you have the conversation with the public, they don't focus particularly on funding it. They say it's a big funding problem, we need to fix that. They focus much more on, you know, as I say, their first priority is to have a big, bold, long-term vision and what do we want and then let's work out how to do it. And, and the public uh, are kind of always really really kind of brave you know, when we say to people what do we need to do they will nearly always say well start don't start from where you are and fiddle with what you've got 
think about what you really want and then work out how to get from here to there. And that's, I think, really why I'm suggesting some, you know, some form of kind of deliberative engagement with with the public, with care users, to really shape what we as a society want. And then, you know, then let's expect our, our politicians to deliver it for us. Martin, I think you wanted to come back in, which is good, because I actually wanted to ask you a follow-up question based on that, which was that, because clearly you spend a, a lot of your time engaging with service users. One of your co-conveners uh, is a service user, and there have been, for example, uh, examples of sister assemblies, though not by the government, so the Health and Social Care Committee uh, convened uh, a sister's assembly to, to inform their proposals. I suppose the question for me is, how do you take that user voice, whether through citizens' assembly, through other forums such as yourself, and how do you inject that into the debate that's happening in Whitehall, and to get yeah. the people in Whitehall who are making those decisions to listen to those voices? Um, and I think that um, one of the things that we're doing is our own inquiry uh, in, in frustration uh, that uh, we have to keep knocking on the doors of think tanks and select committees and commissions to say, please can uh, the voice of people using social care be, be heard? Uh, and so we, we've got uh, an inquiry that's just starting, uh, that's led by a panel of people, older people, people with dementia, people uh, uh, um, who um, use learning disability support or mental health support, uh, a whole range of people. And we are, we are going to be inviting uh, the system leaders and system experts and, and uh, system stewards, as it were, to come and answer our questions rather than uh, begging for a seat at their table. But obviously that won't do the job that, that you're raising here, Nick. So I think uh, we're thinking about what our strategy as a movement is to make sure that um, uh, links and alliances can be formed between people who use social care and those at various levels and in various places uh, have influence. One, one of the points I, I, I would make, uh, linking back to Vicky's issue of uh, engagement with the public, is <clears throat> that one problem is that um, uh, our, our media narrative about social care uh, is one that drives public fatalism, I think. And unfortunately, our, our media narrative is driven by us, those of us uh, that are part of the social care system and, it, and its advocates. Um, uh, and so we get a media narrative of silvers and armies and, and such like that, that really is likely to make people gloomy and feel that things can't be done as opposed to things can be done. And our experience is that around the country, although it's unevenly distributed, there are many glimpses of the future that we want uh, and we can uh, put them together in, in a system uh, that could achieve really dramatically different experiences for people. But a critical part of that is that the public don't think of this as something that's about somebody else, but about, about us because we people who use social care, which is many millions of us, or friends or family uh, over time, are us, we're not them. But unfortunately, I think the, the media narrative fed by uh, uh, advocates, unfortunately, for social care, um, is one that leads the public to think it's about someone else's experience rather than their own. Thank you. I'm going to move on to some uh, questions that we've received from the audience. And uh, the first one I'm probably going to direct towards uh, Graham. So Alan Harvey has asked, should social care be removed from the local government arena? Um, OK, I think the case for removing social care from local government 
is broadly that uh, we you might want national standards in social care. You might want kind of anyone across the country to be receiving you know the same amount, uh, the same quality, same standard of service. Um, and to some extent, the 2014 Care Act is supposed to provide for that. Uh, and it's kind of hard to do that in some ways at the minute because local authorities have you know different levels of funding, different levels of capacity to be able to provide those services. Uh, so one answer might be to take everything nationally. Um, I think the case against it, which is also quite persuasive, is that the more you move something nationally, the more you kind of move it towards Whitehall, the more likely it is to kind of become quite centralised, to focus on the kind of uh, you know, easily definable inputs and outputs and time and task management kind of care that we know that most people think is not good for people that Martin was mentioning before. Um, so possible to remove it from local government. I think in the longer term it could work, but certainly it would be very disruptive and it would risk a lot of the problems of kind of centralised services um, that we know exist. Martin, do you have any thoughts on the appropriate role for local government? Yes, uh, well, I, I think this idea uh, of uh, taking social care and putting the NHS is probably uh, the scariest and worst idea uh, that's emerged uh, from the pandemic. And it's one that many people who use social care are terrified of um, for some of the reasons uh, that Graham's outlined. Um, the NHS is fantastic at what it does. Um, it would be really bad at leading social care because it would drive it towards um, a, a clinical model. Uh, and that is not what people want. People want a social model. Uh, there's many. There are many problems with how local government currently runs social care, uh, and the worst solution would be to place it within the NHS. Um, Vicky, I, I, obviously I'm the type of person who spends more time than is healthy thinking about which tiers of government should have certain responsibilities. Would I be right in thinking this probably isn't something that the public are that bothered about? Bearing in mind they don't know there's a system, they certainly don't care where it's run from. I think they just want to see the outputs. I mean, having said that, um, I think they genuinely don't care about the machinery of government. But I think that one of the things that is quite interesting is people are not really aware of any kind of regulatory function around care. Uh, and that's not to say it doesn't exist, but it's not visible. So quite often when you talk to people about them, they'll start saying, well, why can't we at least have decent regulation? Why can't we almost have like an offstead of the care system? So we can see very easily. Now, of course, a lot of that exists around care homes, but it's quite—it's not very transparent. So I don't think they mind who runs it, but I think they do want to have some kind of independent regulation of it to at least try and prevent some of the worst atrocities that, that happen now. And that very nicely leads on to the next question, which is from uh, Mary Jordan, who's asked, and I think, Martin, I'll direct this one to you. Uh, how can we ensure consistent quality from a disparate array of providers? Yeah, I, I understand why people say that, um, and it's a very hard thing to do. Uh, but um, the solution to it isn't to nationalise and standardise, I don't think. Um, I, I think what we need to be doing is get, getting really clear about what people should be able to expect from the support that they receive. Uh, and we, we do have a regulator uh, that regulates uh, registered provision. I, I think uh, one thing that needs to happen is that we need um, local governments to come back uh, within a framework 
um, of uh, regulation. Uh, we used to have this, uh, it was removed about 15 years ago, uh, because it's not just the things that people uh, provide, it's also the, the ways in which they provide them and the, and the things that are purchased uh, in terms of provision by local authorities. So I think local, we, ha we have a thing called the CARE Act, uh, many people will be aware of it. And uh, to, to be frank, um, it, and it's a good piece of legislation, most people would look at it and say that um, it's a good piece, piece of legislation. But to be frank, it feels as if it's a voluntary um, uh, code as opposed to piece of legislation at the moment. So many people using social care don't feel that they're receiving care that reflects uh, the key elements of the legislation. So I think uh, local authorities uh, need to be both supported to deliver that act, but also um, held to account for its delivery. Graham, um, talking about providers, obviously it's the last few months have been difficult financially for pretty much everyone involved in public services. Can you say a bit about what state uh, independent, whether voluntary sector or private sector, providers of uh, adult social care services are in at the moment and what might need to be done to support them? Yeah, sure. So I think um, there, there is a bit of a myth uh, about social care that a lot of kind of private provision is kind of made by quids in private equity funds. Uh, actually, the vast majority kind of, of care home beds and of home care companies are relatively small. Martin is right to say that kind of care home places like large placements have increased over the last 15 years, but they still make up a relatively small proportion of the market. Um, broadly speaking, they were not in a great state. Um, care homes in particular were having to subsidise kind of the lower costs that local authorities were paying by charging people who pay for their own care more. Uh, a lot of people not unreasonably think that's very unfair. The coronavirus pandemic has obviously increased costs for most of them because They've been having to procure additional PPE. Most of that's been very expensive because there's been global demand for PPE. They've had to put extra infection control measures in place, such as making sure that um, uh, uh, agency staff don't have to work in more than one home, which has been successful. Um, so in short, they were not in a great financial state before. Um, they had a lot of costs coming in. I think in the very, very short term, what the government probably needs to do uh, is to allocate some more money um, to either straight to providers or probably more likely to local authorities to give to providers to make sure they can put that kind of sh those short term safety measures in place in the long term, longer or medium and longer term. The thing that needs to be solved is we need to basically make sure that the public sector is paying at the very least the cost of care uh, to make sure these businesses are sustainable. And Martin, from the kind of the many service users that you talk to, do you kind of notice any kind of patterns in the in the quality of care provided by the the different uh, suppliers, whether kind of small, large, private, or voluntary sector? Uh, it's it's difficult to do that through uh, through talking <laughs> to individuals. Uh, but but um, uh, Future Care Capital um, have produced a report last year uh, that uh, that explores this issue. Um, you know, we, we, we know that um, uh, certain types of provider are, are more or less likely to deliver quality. Um, and there's quite a bit of research going on uh, a, a, about this at the moment. But we do tend to focus here on care homes, don't we? Uh, and um, we also tend to focus on older people. And, um, uh, you know, a very significant proportion of adult social care spend is on working age adults. Um, 
one of the things that's very noticeable about um, the pandemic is that um, now hundreds of thousands of people uh, receive their support through a process called personal budgets or direct payments. Uh, and they take the money from the council instead of a service and they use that to buy support that they design themselves, often through uh, personal assistance. Uh, and one of the really noticeable things uh, that's happened during the pandemic, the early stage of the pandemic in particular, is that uh, despite the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of these people and, and supported by hundreds of thousands of people, it was as if they didn't exist. Um, the system uh, lost them. Uh, in many cases, and although there are there are a number of good practice examples, there are many situations where people were left to sort out their own PPE, um, to uh, uh, to work out their own contingency plans, etc., uh, etc. Et so, I think that um, let let's think beyond care homes, uh, and let's think beyond uh, kind of simple ideas about uh, quality, and let's start thinking about designing uh, support. Uh, that people self-direct uh, and where the support that is used to assist them uh, helps them to achieve the things that matter to them. And that is well beyond being kept safe and alive. It's about, uh, you know, one of the things that's really emerged obviously during the pandemic is this awful situation where people are not able to see their loved ones um, uh, and not able to continue to do things that were important to them. Um, and. Um, when we're thinking about reform of social care, we have to think about that being different because it isn't simply a feature of the pandemic. Um, it is a feature of... Oh, I think I've uh, just lost uh, Martin. Uh, oh, I've got you back in the end there. Uh, Mick, I was, was going to come on to you just picking up on something that Martin said there, um, kind of talking about the kind of personalisation agenda and across quite a few public service kind of the idea of service user choice as a kind of driver of improvement of those services has been you know quite a a big theme in public services over the last decade or or, or more to what extent I know you said earlier that people aren't kind of that bothered about who provides the care as long as it's a, a good standard of care I mean how how passionately do people feel about being able to kind of make choices about where and how they re receive support? Oh, um, very much so. I, I think the point I was making there was about the machinery of delivery. And I think giving people much more uh, empowering them to make their own choices. And you know, frankly, even if an expert doesn't think it's a rational choice, if it's the right choice for them, it's the right choice. I think um, it's incredibly important. And I think people really value it and respect it. I think having said that, there also potentially needs to be um, you know, signposting, I don't know what Bartram thinks about this, you need to be able to help support people to finding solutions. So I think it's one thing for people to be able to say, this is what I think would really help me, but then we actually need to help them get that in a safe way, because they may or may not uh, be able to do that without some kind of signposting and, and, and a safety net almost. But no, I, I think it's incredibly empowering, and I think one of the things is most difficult for people is when they are needing care is it can be incredibly disempowering and i think anything that we can do to put the control back in the hands of the individual uh is, is really powerful so i totally agree with that martin i think you want to come back in yes yeah, so just agreeing with that but uh, uh 
having said, you know, let's talk about more than where the money's coming from. It is critical that we talk about where the money's coming from, and we try and get a win-win, isn't it? So, you know, having worked in the Department of Health all those years and kind of had a sense of how the Treasury thinks about things, I think the win-win is around uh, increasing sustainability uh, of social care. Um, you know, so for decades now, people who run social care have said that they wanted to move towards a prevention agenda. So they want to be able to uh, move resources upstream to reduce uh, uh, the, the, the levels and nature of need that's coming in the, in the, in the direction of uh, needing long-term support. Uh, and you know, we've learned a lot about how to do that um, and the connection of the social care agenda and the civil society uh, agendas is important in this respect. So I think there's a case to be made to the Treasury that it isn't simply about putting billions and billions and billions into uh, sustaining a system uh, which is um, not fit for purpose. It's about putting bi some billions into a system in order to enable it to shift. Uh, so that it's, it's able for a period of time to invest heavily in uh, what might be called prevention um, and become significantly more sustainable. And I think the benefits for people using the system then is that uh, they, uh, they get access to things that are not uh, traditional forms of support that they find institutional and controlling. Uh, and they're more likely to um, be able to get forms of support from neighbours and friends and uh, local businesses and so on. I think that's the way to go. Um, and I think that um, it, it just needs to be unlocked. Uh, so I think while we're having the, the discussion about what the long term fix is, there are things we can do over the next three or four years which would help us to move significantly in that direction um, uh, through uh, investment in, in uh, prevention. And I think that's a good argument for the Treasury. On the kind of uh, good arguments for the Treasury, obviously the Treasury is always interested in spending money more effectively. Uh, we've had a question from uh, Vasco Basak, who has asked about how to eliminate inefficiencies in the uh, NHS and social care system, such as people staying in hospitals uh, longer than is necessary. Graham, can you say at the, the kind of what reforms there have been to that process during the crisis and the extent to which those could be continued beyond? Yeah, absolutely. I think first off, it's just worth saying basically attempts to make efficiencies over the last kind of 10 years have really been about driving costs down and just trying to make savings where you can. That maybe worked for a couple of years to bring down costs, but like it almost certainly had a negative impact on quality as well. So I think as Martin was saying earlier, we will see some efficiencies now are really about making the system more effective. So I'm not really sure efficiency is the right word to capture that, but certainly there's some, there's some value from prevention there, even if it requires quite a lot of money up front. On hospital discharge specifically, um, one of the things that happened really early on during this pandemic is that NHS England issued new guidance, uh, which basically said, um, forget the assessments, forget the money, get people out of hospital, uh, as quickly as possible because you know we want to free up bed space but also partially expect, accepting that kind of uh, hospital is not a good place for people who are medically fit uh, medically fit to leave um, but have some other care needs. Um, I think clearly there have been some really adverse consequences of this because we may have the NHS may have accidentally transferred a large number of asymptomatic uh, you know uh, coronavirus um, people who had coronavirus to care homes to home to their own homes but they may not have had a lot of support. But one of the real benefits of this has been, if you kind of speak to NHS staff and, and social care 
sorry, social workers and local authorities is that they say it's freed them up to think about kind of what is the most appropriate place for someone to go, not what can we afford on this very tight budget and how can we shift the money to make sure the other side pay for it. That bit is good. That bit we should try to keep. I think we really need to recognise that at the same time, there's got to be more capacity for these new kinds of care, whether those be, that be kind of care at people's own homes or uh, better local authority signposting to uh, ways that people can support themselves. So hospital discharge reforms, good. Uh, clearly, we'll need some additional investment in the community to work effectively. Martin, I was, I was going to come to you next, both kind of any thoughts you have on kind of hospital discharge specifically, but also whether you think there have been any other kind of changes or innovations over the past six months that could be continued beyond the crisis, and if so, what it would take to continue them. Yeah, uh, on the hospital discharge, I, I think the work of uh, Professor John Bolton is, is really helpful. Um, uh, so it, it's about investing uh, in short term support for people so that a much more significant number of people are able to stay at home rather than be um, sent straight from hospital into expensive uh, and sometimes inappropriate uh, long term uh, Um, so I think that's worth looking at. Um, one of the things that we've learned over the past uh, six months, there's a thing called the Insight Group, which has been uh, collecting the experience of uh, people using social care over the period of corona, uh, coronavirus, and also uh, looking at good practice examples in response to some of the tricky experiences that people have had. Uh, obviously, tech, um, communication tech in particular, uh, has been a revelation for many people. But I, I would say another thing uh, that has been a revelation in some places is how much you can reduce process and, do, and bureaucracy um, uh, and increase flexibility uh, without unfortunate consequences and with very positive consequences for the people receiving support. Vicky, you mentioned earlier that people, when they see what has happened in adult social care during the crisis, are very angry at what they've seen. Has, have they seen anything that they've liked? Have there any been any kind of bright points or green shoots that, that people have seen that they you think they might like to see more of? Um, yes, and, and I think that comes probably is, is squarely into the Martins area. They, people are very positive about seeing and being part of a bit of, sort of community regeneration in, in a sort of uh, in, in a philosophical sense. I mean, so people have. Lots of people started helping out neighbours. They've met their neighbours when they didn't know them before. They started looking out for people in their community who are vulnerable uh, and stepped forward to kind of help support those people. And they found that incredibly rewarding. So I think there's a, there is something really positive to build on in terms of community cohesion. Uh, and it was a trend that was existing before coronavirus, but it's been massively accelerated, which is a you know, lot of people are not being very proud of Great Britain or the United Kingdom at the moment. And they've been starting to kind of um, identify much more closely with their local community. And I think that's massively been exaggerated, whether that's small businesses who've really pivoted to support their communities, whether it's actually looking out for neighbours. You know, in the early days, uh, you know, clap from the NHS brought people together. So I think, I think that's something incredibly powerful and I think is potentially much more inspiring than seeing people sort of see a green shoot in a system, because actually it's a green shoot in humanity that we want to, you know, to, to nurture. Thank you. Vicky, I'm going to, oh, did you want to come in, Martin, briefly? Uh, just, just to uh, mutual, my next conversation this afternoon is about the future of mutual aid. Um, 
one of the really critical things there is the relationship between local mutual aid and the local state and making sure that relationship is one of support and, and supplementing rather than uh, uh, controlling. Okay, I'm going to ask you one final question and then I'm going to go round the panellists and ask you for brief uh, closing uh, thoughts uh, before we finish. So, uh, Vicky, just picking up on something you said earlier, so Hugh McKenzie has asked, uh, surely the, uh, the funding, uh, the issue is for all working adults to take out a social care ISA up to a maximum amount which will pay for the future funding needs. How well do you think that would go down with the public? Um, I think it's a really interesting idea. Uh, I think it doesn't necessarily get you away from the problem of thinking why do, why do only some people contribute because unless it was compulsory then it was still um, you know, potentially. But I think all those ideas we should explore. But I think in some ways they also need to be associated with more choice and more freedom to design your own care needs. So I, absolutely, I think we should encourage people to save for it and personally and take some responsibility. But in, as well as looking at probably the systemic changes. Great. Okay. Now, final uh, closing remarks. I'm going to start with you, Martin. I suppose just to make the uh, case again that we talk at least as much about what social care does in the future as how it's going to be paid for, uh, and that when we do that, uh, we bring people who use social care to the heart of the discussions. Otherwise, we'll end up with more of what we've got now. And that won't do. Graham? Uh, I would just say to try and answer the question uh, on the exam sheet, it is possible for the government to find a consensus on social care. Uh, I think my mind has partly been changed a bit by listening to Martin. I think that he's right, that one of the main questions that commissions have got to answer is what kind of social care system do we want? Probably would benefit from having some user experts on there as well. But I think also at the same time, it still has to be a parliamentary commission to build cross-party support because quite frankly, like, if you just try and do it on your own, you will fall down at the political hurdles, and that is the only way forward. So hope to see more of that soon. Thank you. And finally, Vicky, your closing thoughts. Um, I guess I'd echo much of that. I think pushing the people that matter at the heart of this thinking, uh, so existing social care users and future social care users, is incredibly important. And you know, I think they would probably be inclined to say, don't be afraid to rip up what we've got and start again, but let's actually design the future of what we want and then work out how to get there and not continually fiddle around with what we've got. Thank you. Right. With that, I'm going to bring the discussion to a close. Uh, for those of you viewing the conference in our virtual tent, uh, if you'd like to know more about our work in this area, then please click on the get in touch button uh, to submit your details. Uh, of particular interest will be a new Institute for Government report that will be out in a month or so, looking at how five public services, including adult social care, have been disrupted and have changed in response to the crisis. For those with an interest beyond public services, uh, the next Institute uh, for government event is starting in 30 minutes uh, and we'll see Sir Bernard Jenkin and others discuss how to most effectively learn lessons from an inquiry into the coronavirus response uh, and we've got two other events later this afternoon as well. Uh, finally I'd like to thank our three speakers for what's been a brilliant discussion uh, and to all those who watched uh, and submitted questions. Thank you and goodbye.